Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Join us September 25th, 26th, and 27th for a three-day special streaming event, Strange Realities, to push the limits of your reality. Featuring authors, academics, researchers, occultists, experiencers, podcasters, and practitioners. All presenting fresh, cutting-edge material and research. Streaming live. Featuring presentations by Brent Raines, editor of Alternate Perceptions Magazine. Aaron Gullius, host of the Saucer Life Podcast. David Metcalf, writer and researcher. Alan Greenfield, author of Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts. Stephanie Quick, writer and blogger. Red Pill Junkie, 14 researcher and explorer. Tim Banal, host of Banal of America. Guy Malone, iconoclast and troublemaker. Timothy Ritter, host of Strange Familiars. Kiki Dombrowski, author and practitioner. Greg Bishop, author of Project Beta. Jenny Ashford, host of 13 O'Clock. Recluse, host of The Farm. Jack Montgomery, Folk Magic. Joshua Cutchin, author of Thieves in the Night. Reverend Michael Carter, alien contact experiencer. Dr. Future, host of Future Court. Tony Kale, author of Memphis Hoodoo. Rin Collier, occultist. Soraya Ascap, host of Where Did the Road Go? John Tinney, Ghost Stalkers and Hell. All three days, only $20. Tickets and info available at strangerealitiesconference.com. Brought to you by the Conspiranormal Podcast. Conspiranormal.com. Strange realities. See, this, this is what I was like, like, Stephen. I was just like talking to Seraphiel earlier, you know, right before we called you. And it's like, where'd they find these people? You know, like, they, like, there was no background check. Because at least it's probably the best they could do. Like they found like the person that has some of the most ridiculous beliefs that they possibly could. Well, I mean, it's not though because this is you know affiliated with the Council for National Policy. I mean, there's always been a strong dominionist trend in it. I mean, I think Tom LaHaye or somebody like that, or Tim LaHaye was one of like the founders. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, it's not surprising to me that there would be these kind of religious kooks because I mean, they've always been yeah. sort of hovering in the background of the council for national policy. So uh, they're probably already in the network. Yeah, essentially <laughs> they're probably like, Oh, well she's a doctor. Yeah, I mean, effectively, you know, I mean, rally, I mean, going through the register, I mean, who do we have who's actually a medical doctor? Okay, were you willing to come out and, you know, uh, parrot the party line on this COVID thing for us? Well, all right, great, you're hired. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, okay, guys. Welcome back to Conspiranormal. And it's your host, your friendly host, Adam, and Serfiel is here. As reality gets stranger and stranger. Yes, yeah. As <laughs> and that, and that, that's kind of a plug, I guess, for the Strange Realities Conference, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. But also the truth. Um, but we have someone that's actually going to be presenting at our online Strange Realities Conference, and that is this man of mystery. We call him Recluse. Some call him Stephen. Welcome to Conspiranormal again, Recluse. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me back on again. 
Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Um, we've been listening to the podcast that you run now called The Farm and have been really enjoying it. Some of the guests that you've had on and uh, I've really I've really, really enjoyed the discussions. You guys really dig deep into a lot of, I guess, the conspiracy world and some of the um, things that are going on with these like different political entities and um you know really been exploring what uh what you all call the right side of the pyramid in particular well i mean i'm glad you guys have been enjoying it and you know there is a lot of thought that goes into the gifts i mean certainly i'm really happy with a lot of the different perspectives that we've had coming through lately of course you know the most recent podcast we had paul weston up there to uh you know talk about george hunt williamson and william dudley Paley. and uh Mm -hmm. i mean i just think it's great because i mean paul you know is essentially a practicing occultist a pagan and what have Mm -hmm. you and i mean it's fabulous to get him on there and then probably in about two weeks we're going to have doc future in there i mean as you guys know is a very devout christian and he's also going to denounce william dudley paley so that's fantastic <laughs> you know i mean i'm all for anybody who's going to come on there to denounce that uh cretin <laughs> yeah 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 but he's he's kind of like he, he's he's somebody that you could denounce all across the board of any kind of like religious or political spectrum i suppose well yeah I yeah know. i mean we can all join hands and you know denounce this guy i mean it's, it's <laughs> wonderful you know i mean it's you know it's a bridge of a kind that you know we're trying to build here yeah <laughs> yeah well i think uh you know one thing that we've never talked to you about man has been just like kind of how you got into all this kind of I guess the material that you talk about on the show, I mean, you really, mm-hmm. you're really someone that even before you started doing the farm that we found out about that really digs deep and really does some serious research. But how did this kind of start for you? Who's well, the mean, man it, behind the spider? Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, it probably really went back to my dad. Um, my dad uh, had probably been in military intelligence at some point. I've been, I know I've been kind of criticized for that a little bit before because I said at one point he was in special forces. That's what I was always told by my mom, but I don't know if that was the case after going through his military record. But I feel pretty certain he was in Army intelligence because he was mm. stationed at Fort Meade, uh, home of the NSA, and he also did some time at a very classified listening post in Greenland at one point. Uh, Uh, But my dad definitely had a very uh, parapolitical slash conspiratorial worldview. I mean, I think I can – I believe it was William Cooper. I believe I can remember listening to him probably back in the early 90s when I was only like uh, probably 10 or so years old thereabouts. (laughs) Um, So – Definitely. You know, I can remember a lot of this stuff going over it with dad years ago. And then um, uh, I think a lot of it was probably rekindled bizarrely (laughs) by a uh, experience I had on mushrooms, actually, when I was at the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. That's a really weird place to trip in general because you're right (laughs) in the heartland of like focus on the family and what have you. Yeah. So anyway, you know, the Air Air Force Academy. Yeah, the Air Force. And then there's all the military stuff, no rad and everything is there and what have you. I mean, yeah, it's a creepy place in general. But um, so, yeah, I'm at this college campus. I was living at the dorms at the time. I took the mushrooms. I think this actually might have been the first time I'd really tripped to. Um, and so I'm wondering around, I hadn't really gotten much in terms of visuals or anything. So the cafeteria was open late at night. I kind of was starting to get a little hungry. So I wandered into this thing. Of course, I'm in the heartland of Christian fundamentalism and what have you there. And boom, 
I suddenly think that I'm on a spaceship. I'm like walking into this cafeteria. It's all kind of like white with smoke and what have you everywhere. And I'm seeing all of these gray aliens walking around amongst the students and the staff and what have Whoa. you. Whoa. Yes, <laughs> oh, yes, wow. yes. It was to this day, it's probably the most intense hallucination I've ever had. It was just mind blowing. And that had gotten me interested in the whole, you know, the notion of people seeing extraterrestrials while they were on psychedelics. Uh, which had actually led me to some of Strassman's DMT research. And from there, I just kind of started getting into the whole history of research into hallucinogens. And that kind of brought up all the MK Ultra stuff and the parapsychology stuff sure. and what have you. And that kind of rekindled a lot of my interest in these arcane topics. And uh, from there, it kind of went through a period of very intense research for several years before I started blogging. Well, I mean, like I said before, you dig you dig pretty deep, Stephen, on a lot of this stuff. And we had you on the first time we talked about uh, the Knights of Malta, and that was actually where we kind of introduced you and Doctor Future because we had because he had done a lot of research on them. And then the second time was only just a couple of months ago when we had you on talking about you the book with the the strange tales of the parapolitical. But I mean, you cover like stuff about digging really deep into Trump and his connections and. Uh, you know, uh, Roy Cohn all the way to like mysterious groups like La Circla and these like kind of really like um, these paramilitary and stay behind armies like uh, the Gladio. I mean, and, and you're even working on stuff like about Jeffrey Epstein. And so like you're covering a pretty good gamut of like a lot of like really dirty tricks and like <laughs> a lot of like bad skullduggery. Yeah, well, I mean, the weird thing is, I mean, it's all, you know, interrelated, you sure. know, honestly. I mean, that was almost one of the reasons why I just eventually branched out into just so many crazy topics. Because, I mean, in order to understand certain things, you've got to research other topics, and that leads to other topics. And after a while, it's just like, well, I'm researching these weird Christian fundamentalist cults, and I'm finding out that they're into orgone energy and uh, Scientology. And it's like, well, how does this even happen <laughs> right yeah. right exactly what i think what separates uh a lot of your work too is that you you have uh so much historical context and you're able to look at the the meta levels of how uh conspiracy theory uh narratives are created and 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 used by certain groups at the same time um so that it's it's like a breath of fresh air and it makes sense that you have memories of this kind of conspiracy culture as uh as early as you do because you're able to kind of put it in more perspective yeah yeah well i mean it's definitely really fascinating i mean the more i've gotten into this you know i really kind of started to realize that the conspiracy culture itself in many ways is every bit as interesting as a lot of the subjects that it is uh, exploring yeah so, yeah yes yes and, I mean, and, also, and also how it's been weaponized too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's absolutely something, too. I'm going to get into my presentation a bit at the Strange Realities, uh, Good. you know, my uh, spot there. And then also I've got another extended essay that's uh, I'm just still kind of tinkering on a little bit. That's also sort of the launching point for the uh, the chat I'm going to give at the con. But, um, yeah, it's going to be really cool. It's going to get into psychological warfare and specifically how 
uh, a lot of occultism and what have you was used deliberately by psychological warfare officers and specifically those of a very right-leaning perspective probably to uh, rally the Christian right during the 1980s. So uh, I think it's going to be a very fascinating topic. Uh, I'm just really excited about some of this research coming out. Uh, it's going to be really cool. <laughs> Nice, nice. That origin story is really interesting with um, your psychedelic experience really being this catalyst um, because there's there's so much of a history of that. Uh, just the things that psychedelic experience have in common with a lot of this type of thinking as far as like this associative, paranoid, almost um, – schizophrenic way of thinking that you know definitely relates to people like robert anton wilson and and other uh, psychedelic pioneers yeah i mean i could definitely see that and uh, i mean i think that sort of goes in a lot to like my research and uh, I mean, I know I get to ask a question a lot, essentially, of how I make a lot of these connections and what have you. I've actually got a guy, what was it, the Irish Socialist Republican or something, who wanted me to do uh, a chat, basically, with him on that. Uh, and it's just, it's a really odd process, because I do read, like, a phenomenal amount of books, and a lot of times, to make the connections, it is actually a process of disassociation. A lot of times, I like to lay around yeah. in a dark room with some headphones on, listening to some really atmospheric music and just try to totally cut off the outside world just kind of loosen my mind up and from there i just kind of will start running names through my head and certain things will start to connect and really that's how i do make a lot of these connections it's very strange i mean that's why i almost kind of think of a lot of my research even though i've always kind of viewed myself as more of a historian um i do sort of feel like a lot of my research and my writing and what have you is approached more like a novel it does feel very much like an artistic process and sometimes i do feel like a lot of the connections almost come from without if that makes any sense yeah sure. like a, it, yeah. it's almost a it's almost an occult process Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, I would kind of think it almost more kind of, uh, you know, in the arts corresponding with the muses or something to that effect. But I mean, I kind of feel like some ways that's what I'm doing, too. I I, I like that referring kind of back to, to uh, William Cooper. Uh, I like that you called this you're doing this series on the farm called anti-mystery babylon what do you mean by that like yeah essentially i mean he wasn't wrong in suggesting that secret societies have played a large role in shaping human history which you know have been very little remarked upon by credible or academic historians or something to that effect so that's no doubt true but in the case of Cooper, I mean, obviously he would go on to promote a lot of just shoddy research and so forth. And a lot of the, you know, kind of common whipping boys of this type of research that have been around for years. I mean, of course, the United States, for instance, has had um, Illuminati scares <laughs> literally going back to the time of the founders. And then I believe there was another rekindling of this, like uh, around the time of the First World War and what have you. So in a sense, you know, I mean, he was kind of bringing out some old war horses when he really started to popularize the concept of the Illuminati again uh, yeah. in American conspiracy culture in the late 80s, the early 90s, and so forth. Um, so yeah, I mean, a lot of that is really interesting in and of itself. But I mean, another thing, too, that I really wanted to try to get into with the Anti-Mystery Babylon series was to go into secret societies and cults that you really don't hear a lot about. Um, sure. You know, one of the ones I'm 
really excited for that we're going to get Richard B. Spence back is uh, to go into is the Orange Order, uh, which is really crucial because, I mean, when you study this history of these stay-behind armies like I have over the years, you start seeing that these stay-behind armies have been closely associated with secret societies in a lot of different countries. I mean, of course, very famously, you've got um, Propaganda Dewey in Italy, of course, which was associated with so much of the stay-behinds there during the years of lead and so forth. But, I mean, you also have the Cagoule, who were effectively being used by the French military to erect a kind of stay-behind force in France during the 1930s. You had the Thule Society, who famously raised a lot of the free corps that were used to suppress the communists during the 1920s in Germany, yes. mm -hmm. uh, which eventually essentially became the stormtroopers, the SA, and so forth. So, I mean, you have this long history of these secret societies and these stay-behind armies, and I kind of think the origins of this might have been this kooky Orange Lodge thing, which the British came up with. It was basically designed to um, ensure the continuation of Scotland and Ireland in the Empire. So you basically set these up. They were based on Masonic principles. They tended to recruit heavily from Protestants, especially in Ireland, and they effectively were turned into a paramilitary force at different points by the British. And um, the Orange Lodge, I mean, was still being used effectively in stay-behind operations up to the 1970s. I mean, it showed up in the horrendous Concord Boys' Home scandal. So, you know, it's a very interesting topic. Um, and that's the type of stuff that you really just don't see addressed in these, you know, these things that purport to expose secret societies. And that's really what I wanted to do with the anti-mystery Babylon, get into this kind of stuff that Cooper, I'm guessing Cooper probably knew a lot of this history, but he selectively chose to ignore it. So Yeah, it probably uh, wasn't sensationalist enough for him. Well, it's not, I, you know, again, you know, Cooper was a military intelligence officer, Office of Naval Intelligence, right? Yeah. So. And I mean, the thing with Cooper, you know, I mean, if you listen to some of the stuff he says, you know, I mean, he was very fanatical about citing your sources and finding credible sources, all of which, you know, really influenced me when I started on this journey. But when you actually go back and look at the stuff that Cooper was citing, it's crap, you know. <laughs> so it's like you're left with this, you know, dick to me with Cooper where it's like, OK, the guy obviously knows how to do a scholarly research on something, but he doesn't do it. You know, so yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, that's the kind of sophistication that really does go into a lot of these right wing conspiracy uh, theories, you know, and their uh, proponents and so forth. It's so amazing. So the Orange Order is kind of a reference. I guess the Orange would be the reference of William of Orange. Yes, absolutely. OK, yes, OK. Yes, it was. Yeah. I believe it was the first patriarch was William of Orange. So that's yeah, the, the, that that relationship between secret societies and intelligence networks you're 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 almost to the point where they become one and the same really there's yeah. not much that is there's are the stay are the stay behind armies which are you know intelligence networks in and of themselves i mean there's just not really much of a difference and you know dr future kind of put it to me that you know the cia had so much of influence from the skull and bone society that the thing is, it's just like because of that little silly secret society at Yale, they already knew they could keep secrets. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's why I don't think it's that surprising that you do see, especially in the early CIA, that so many of the officers were recruited from these very exclusive orders like Skull and Bones of the Sovereign Military Order of Malta and that type of thing for that exact reason that you're alluding to. I mean, they were already used to, you know, these individuals had already been shown that they could keep secrets, that they could function in a clandestine organization. So, yeah, I mean, they would have been a logical choice. And then on top of that, I mean, a lot of the networks were essentially meant to identify you know young men at the time from the right sort of background you know quote unquote you know to groom them for eventually you know prestigious positions and posts and so forth so yeah i mean it is a very logical connection that they would make and i mean you could also really throw in organized crime for that matter as well i mean because again frequently secret societies delve into organized crime and certainly intelligence services do and you know essentially the mafia the yakuza they really do function in a lot of ways like secret societies right right they have that veneer that kind of quasi-religious veneer they have the strange beliefs that they believe in and it allows everybody to have this brotherhood and they believe that they are carrying the secret and that they only they know this the the secret to to their group and that's it's just it's just another training ground i, I kind of look at it as just like you know a lot of people would say well the, the secret society set these these up but like i would just say now they're kind of just one and the same you know you've got just these guys that come together for whatever nefarious reason are what they believe is a good reason. And then they begin to build this kind of occult belief system around that. I don't think, you know, it's, there's almost a chicken and egg kind of quality to it, but I think that that's more where it comes from. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, of course, in our you know particular history too. I mean, so much of it comes from the British. And uh, as I you know come to realize, especially in researching the Epstein book, I mean, the British are very clever. They're very nefarious. They you know do a lot of stuff that might seem utterly ridiculous or nonsensical. But in many cases, mm-hmm. there is a very deliberate reason for why it was done. Uh, I mean, just when you look at a guy like Sir William Wiseman, who was managing. Uh, pretty much all of the, you know, what would have been the, what eventually became MI6, its intelligence network in North America during the First World War. I mean, he was using all kinds of crazy people. I mean, he was using Aleister Crowley as a major infiltration agent against the German services. He had Sidney Riley, the so-called ace of spies, on retainer. He was probably working with Harry Houdini at some point, which also brings up the prospect that Lovecraft himself might have been a part of this network. And, I mean, the British would continue to use these occult as well into the Second World War. I mean, we know that from the uh, the use of horoscopes and astrology to manipula- manipulate Rudolf Hess and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, just the British yeah. whole approach to this. I mean, they would really use almost anyone imaginable. I mean, they were probably the ones who cemented the, uh, um, the working relationship between the syndicate and U.S. intelligence as well. I mean, certainly William Stevenson made good use of the mafia to um, liquidate German agents in New York and so forth in the lead up to the second world war so well it's um all these different connections are just are just so extremely extremely interesting uh i don't want to get too bogged down into epstein i know this is kind of a current events kind of thing especially with uh Ghislaine maxwell being you know in custody and all this kind of thing and of course the joke is is that she's going to die next but apart from Epstein, I mean, she's interesting in and of herself just because of who her father was and the fact of the way that he died 
um, very mysteriously and that there was some kind of intelligence connection to that. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Robert Maxwell, you know, at different times was probably an agent for the Mossad, for MI6 and for the KGB, Um, you know, just really kind of a classic case. I mean, in many ways, he was almost a a modern manifestation of the spy. I had just mentioned Sidney Riley, who had such a strange history. Of course, he was um, a Russian Jew who had worked for the czar secret police. He had worked for MI6. He had later worked for the, uh, the Cheka, the early intelligence service for the Bolsheviks that became the KGB. Uh, he'd even worked for the Germans at a few points for the Kempitai, the big intelligence service for the Japanese. Uh, but a lot of times, you know, that's just how these guys, you know, operate and how they survive essentially. I mean, of course, when you're using double agents in the first place, I mean, they have to be able to give, the intelligence service that they're penetrating enough useful information to the point that they're not going to become suspicious and a lot of times to do that and stay alive you have to effectively switch sides at certain points um you know that was really the game that i would guess that robert maxwell was playing because i mean you know all of these intelligence services knew about his double dealing i mean maxwell really solidified his relationship with the kgb in 1954 i mean he'd had ties to them even before then but 54 he had a big meeting in moscow he negotiated essentially a monopoly on all of the soviet scientific publications that were coming out at the time he only got that because the kgb gave the okay for it uh and essentially decided that he was one of their boys and you know as soon as he gets back the british you know they knew about all of this he was uh he went there with his secretary who was having an affair with she was brought into mi5 essentially to tell them everything that was going on so from you know, essentially this point onward, they knew that Maxwell was in contact with senior KGB officers, and they effectively continued to use him as a back channel to the Soviet Union all the way up to the time of Thatcher. And I mean, he had a great relationship with Thatcher, which is interesting in and of itself because he was an avowed socialist, quote unquote, who was in some sense a KGB stooge. And yet he was great friends with the Iron Lady. So go figure that um, but, you know, this is just how these things work in these circles. It's just really bizarre. And, um, you know, you're seeing traces of that now with Epstein and Ghislaine. I mean, who were they working for? A lot of people want to say that it was the Mossad or the CIA. But uh, again, you know, I kind of think the British are another interesting specter in all of this as well. And they could have been working for all three. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would imagine yeah. that would be very much yeah. the case. Well, this is what we were talking. I mean, we, Sophie and I were having a conversation yesterday and we were talking about this you know a lot of people think that especially in the conspiracy world now that they think that this is all about some kind of certain ideology and a lot of people you know the big boogeyman of socialism or communism and that's what they think but like the way this stuff really works and the way these guys really work and maxwell is a perfect example of this is they just sell themselves off to the highest bidder and yeah. there's no there's there's no ideology if there was in the beginning it wasn't there at the end yeah i mean you know if you get into some of the desk jockeys i mean the kind of uh, you know the ivy league types that have been groomed for the upper echelons i mean yeah there might be some ideology there but certainly the operators the guys in the actual field no i mean yeah. they've got to be flexible and on top of that they know that whatever intelligence service that they're working for will sell them out in a heartbeat you know they could end up dead at a moment's notice so and that you know with that kind of in mind they're always out to get theirs effectively and essentially try to get away an insurance policy something to the effect that yeah. will eventually enable them to get out of the game 
game. So well, I, yeah, and I think like the KGB in particular, they really they didn't as far as Western recruits, they didn't like true believers. They wanted more self-interested people. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, who well, were working for, many, for money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for many years, that was essentially the whole mindset of the KGB. I mean, there was nothing more reliable than a man whose loyalty could be bought for cold, hard cash, essentially. But I mean, it's like, you know, the KGB, it's just incredible. I mean, one of the things I've recently learned is that so many of the early KGB guys had actually worked for the Tsarist secret police. Um, In fact, one of the uh, early heads, it wasn't the KGB at the time, it was whatever it was in the 30s. They changed the name every couple of years until Stalin died. In KVD, I think. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But I mean, the guy you got or something like that. I mean, he had actually been a czarist informant who had worked his way up through the ranks of the Soviet intelligence service to become the head of it in like 1934 or something like that. And he was hardly alone. There were a lot of former czarist uh, intelligence officers in the early Soviet intelligence services. And the thing that's really weird is that, you know, when you kind of flash forward to the uh, the 1970s and so forth, the KGB was really who drove uh, Perestroika through uh, and essentially started to open up the Russian economy to capitalist uh, investment and what have you. And uh, then you have people like Alexander Dugan, the guy who discovered Julius Evoli in, a, I believe it was a KGB library that he needed restricted access for it, and who sort of revived the whole concept of national Bolshevik uh, ideology and that type of thing. Of course, he's continued to be you know, supported by the FSB, one of the predecessors of the KGB in the years afterwards. And he's, of course, now Putin's quote-unquote Rasputin. Of course, you've got to be careful about these kind of allegations, but he does seem to have <laughs> some kind of sway in uh, Russian elite circles. Of course, you've got Putin, you know, the supposedly arch-nationalist revolutionary uh, who's himself a former KGB man. So it's really interesting, you know. I mean, the KGB came from a lot of cases, Tsar's secret police. It was nonetheless tasked with maintaining the communist revolution. And then, essentially, in the 1970s, when it came to the realization that communism could not compete in the long run with capitalism, it seems to have instigated a nationalist revolution. Well, so this, this is a synchronicity because this, I, I was, you know, Dr. It's interesting because I was talking to Dr. Future the other night about this too. And I've, I've had the same thought that because a lot of Dr. Future's research in, in this Russia book that he hasn't put out, that he talks about how the KGB and the close ties between the KGB and the Russian Orthodox church. And you first, you think, the KGB is representative of a supposedly atheist communist society. But a lot of those guys and a lot of higher ups in the Communist Party were all closet Orthodox. And it almost seemed to me that beca- that because of that, at a certain point, the KGB actually were the ones that actually brought the Soviet Union down because they essentially had become Russian nationalists. Yeah, I mean, I think that was very much the case. And I mean, you know, again, whether they truly embrace nationalism like they ever truly embrace communism is highly debatable. But I think they saw that that was the expedient thing to do at the time. I mean, the United States, going back to the early 70s, had essentially been telegraphing our next move, which was the fact that we were going to massively ratchet up um, defense spending to a point that it would destroy the Soviet economy. And yep. once the KGB realized 
realized that, well, there's nothing that we could, you know, that they could do to stop that. I mean, they just didn't have the resources to compete with America's economy. So it's time to scrap the whole communist project. It's just not going to work and sustain Russia as a major superpower in the long run. So you got to find something else. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's very similar to to how the kind of like the Nazi international started moving resources out around 1943 when they saw the writing on the wall yeah out of yeah. germany absolutely like the, Bormann, the Bormann and Skorzeny and all that network yeah and i mean it's just really interesting because i mean you know that was really when maxwell's whole heyday was i mean according to the great jeffrey gilson who's a fabulous british researcher um maxwell was effectively the bag man for the labor party during the 1980s off of all the arms deals and this was a huge thing in the uk in the 1980s i mean you know we talk about the military industrial complex in the united states but in a lot of ways it became even more pervasive in the uk under thatcher i mean i think by the mid 90s or something i it was something like one out of every five people in the uk was involved in the defense industry or something to that effect it was just absurd so they managed this with some huge arms deals tied up with the whole iran contra thing in the 1980s maxwell was the bag man for these proceeds and he essentially got the green light from the kgb to you know uh, stash these funds in Bulgaria and the banking system there. Um, and at the same time, Bulgaria had just become an absolute hub for organized crime, for drug trafficking. It, it was just, it was absurd. I mean, you basically have heroin that was being used to, you know, addict the Russian army that was being trafficked out of Afghanistan and so forth through Bulgaria. It was then going into Italy where uh, the P2 was probably getting a cut of it being passed on to the Italian mafia distributed to the rest of Europe. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you basically have this absurd situation where, I mean, it seems like the multiple intelligence services from both the East and West are subsidizing this just enormous arms and drug trafficking scheme that's going on during Iran-Contra. It's being used to devastate the Soviet Union in particular, but the KGB is making phenomenal money off of it. I mean, they're banking yeah. and setting it aside, you know, I mean, basically getting set up for the next uh, phase, more or less. So, yeah, I mean, it's just incredible. I want to switch gears a little bit here and talk about this concept of synarchy about what this is because you guys have talked about a lot about this on your show yeah i mean it's a really fascinating subject um uh, a lot of it goes back to uh, saint yves something or other <laughs> i'm not going to try to destroy the pronunciation of the guy but i mean if you look it up <laughs> you can find it but um you know i mean i really i think though kind of derived out of theosophy and the whole concept of the secret chiefs yves essentially believed that we should have a kind of government that was ordered around how occult secret societies were theoretically in communion with the secret chiefs so democracy it had to go you needed a kind of council of elect uh, what eventually became con conceived of as technocrats to oversee everything uh, and they would effectively bring order to society quote unquote and, um, you know, this was just a concept that uh, it really became prevalent uh, initially in occult societies, thanks to Papists. 
uh, he had embraced it and he had incorporated it into Martinism, which is a very esoteric type of uh, Freemasonry. And to some extent, it's also a very curious one in the sense that it's not especially hostile to Christianity, unlike some of the other branches like the Grand Orient and so forth. In fact, Papist kind of considered himself to be a kind of Christian mystic, um, and he had actually sort of served as the occult advisor to the Tsarist court before Rasputin's rise uh, during the very early 20th century, and that led to a proliferation of Martinist lodges in uh, Russia in the years leading up to the First World War and the Revolution, and there were a couple of communist, uh, future communist chiefs, Bolsheviks, who were involved in those Martinist lodges, so go figure. But um, anyway, you end up having the Synarchy Doctrine really taking root in France, and it was eventually embraced by another kind of secret society, the Cagoul, which was, as I had alluded to earlier, one of these sort of uh, clandestine networks that was involved in stay-behind efforts. It was being subsidized by the uh, French military as well as the Italian secret services. They were using it to traffic arms to the nationalists in Spain at the time. And in the post, uh, after the Nazis had invaded and conquered France, there was a lot of speculation that some of the synarchists who had been involved in the Cagoule network had eventually rose to prominence in Vichy, France. Um, you know, that's sort of debatable, but there definitely was a strong network of um, former Cagoulards that were spread all across France. And uh, they really gained a lot of power uh, because they were essentially in both the Axis and the Allied camps. So they were major network for intelligence uh, and so forth. But I mean, the whole concept of synarchy. Uh, you know, you could really argue in a sense that communism was also a variation on this. I mean, effectively, as it was conceived of by the Bolsheviks and Lenin specifically, it was an authoritarian ideology that jettisoned democracy that believed effectively that you needed a clandestine elite to organize and govern society, which was essentially what the Synarchists wanted. But in a lot of ways, this is also what the Nazis wanted. And uh, this came out of the, the Thule Society, effectively, which also had embraced the whole concept of the secret chiefs. Of course, it came to Thule via um, the whole, you know, Ariosophy notion, um, which essentially could be seen in, well, there were different variations of Ariosophy. You had some of the pagan branches, you had some that were almost kind of like a Gnostic variation, somewhat similar to Christian identity theology, where white Aryans were these divine supermen and the rest of humanity were subhuman demonic races or something to that effect. Um, whatever the case may be, it produced a major authoritarian ideology in Nazi Germany, to be sure. Uh, so, yeah, when you look at uh, this sort of spiritual transformation that was touched off by theosophy and this doctrine of the secret chiefs, it spread into these different types of ideologies. And I think to some extent it even went into Christianity in uh, the early 20th century. When you look at groups like the family and the moral rearmament movement, again, you know, you're essentially replacing the secret chiefs with Jesus plus nothing or something to that effect oh. and trying to organize a cabal of key men, so to speak, who, again, are divinely sanctioned to rule society to bring order between the labor you know the labor struggle or what have you and effectively jettison democracy that's always a big thing with these doctrines you do not want people actually choosing their own destiny because you know they can't do it for themselves so you need an enlightened or technocratic elite to do it for them wow or someone who's divinely ordained or has some kind of communication with the divine supposedly 
Oh, absolutely. So I kind of thought this, the one thing I kind of talked to Doc Future with when we uh, finished recording was the Kansas City Prophets. That kind (laughs) of seems like that might be the emerging version of the secret chiefs within Dominionism, something to certainly keep an eye on. Hmm. Or uh, in your most recent show, you guys were talking about this idea of uh, Q being almost like uh, channel texts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Q is another one who's really become a kind of, I mean, really a whole network of secret chiefs, really, for the alt-right or something to that effect. I mean, yeah, that's definitely something that you could see the parallels there as well. Um, And essentially, also ominously, uh, kind of conditioning his followers to the whole concept that martial law will be a wonderful thing because it'll give Trump and or the military the ability to finally destroy the the satanic pedophiles and so forth. (laughs) So when... When you're when the enemy is when you supernaturalize the enemy, then naturally you're doing the same to yourself. So it basically goes back to this occult concept that really came from like P.B. Randolph and Theosophy of there being this like white versus black lodge, Mm -hmm. there being these you know ascended masters or uh, people on both sides of the veil, you know, both on your side and the other side. And it's it's crazy that so many people have adopted it when it's essentially this like 19th century occult concept. Yeah, I mean, it's really amazing how enduring it is. And um, I mean, especially with the Christian right, really, because, I mean, you could almost take it back um to Shiite Islam, really, and the whole concept of um, um, the hidden ayman, I believe it is, or something to that effect. Imam, yeah, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Sunniism, I mean, an ayman can be pretty much anybody. It doesn't mean much of anything. But uh, in Shiiteism, it's very, very serious. You know, I mean, they keep uh, track of the ayman's, and there's some dispute over how many ayman's there were from the time of uh, Muhammad. Uh, the two big branches of the Seveners and the Twelvers, the Twelvers are currently the dominant branch, I believe, and who really hold sway in modern day Iran and then of course the Seveners had been dominant uh, up through the Middle Ages and this is where the Nisriya come from and then of course the infamous Isasians and that type of thing so I mean you know in and of itself this is kind of an esoteric doctrine adopted from Islam by Blavatsky and Theosophy that now seems to obsess the Christian right, you know, in turn, who are convinced that, uh, you know, they're about to be conquered by the Islamic hordes being driven by some kind of Marxist uh, elite cabal in the United States or something to that effect. So we've really come full circle in a lot of ways. And then to cap it off, I mean, you know, the Iranians, you know, they believe that when the second coming comes and Jesus comes back, that'll be a wonderful thing because then the hidden Iman will come back with him. So they want Jesus to come back as much as any Christian fundamentalist uh, in the United States wants him to come back. He's going to come out of he's going to come out of the well. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, they're the one Islamic country that they're all convinced is the ultimate personification of evil rather than the uh, Saudis or something to that effect. Yeah, there was a group I wanted to ask you about that you uh, you pinned into the uh, you pinned into the Synarchist camp. And this one I had never heard of called the Dark Enlightenment. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Well, I mean, it's more of a philosophy than a movement, uh, but it essentially kind of came out of a very curious group called the the Cybernetic Cultural Research Unit, which was an unofficial faculty movement with some students and what have you at uh, Warwick University in the UK. 
in the 90s and uh you know they came up with some just really crazy ideals um a big driving philosophy behind them was this whole concept of accelerationism which effectively held that capitalism and technology should be sped up to the maximum capacity so that they could bring humanity towards this shiny new future which many people in the ccru believed effectively would lead to the replacement of humanity with something better or something to that effect um another thing that they became obsessed with was the notion of a hyperstition basically the concept of trying to turn fiction into a reality which is something that they at the time really were seeing happening with the whole uh the cyberpunk stuff i mean yeah i know chris knowles kind of jokes about that how we don't see any cyberpunk anymore because we're effectively living in the cyberpunk right. future now so that was something that they were already seeing starting to unfold in the 90s and they became convinced that you know you could do this with all kinds of other fiction and um as i understand it it kind of led to them almost building a kind of cult uh, within the CCRU around the John Carpenter film in the mouth of madness, uh, which is very interesting. Um, but yeah, it was just really kooky. And uh, one of the big proponents of all this stuff was a guy named Nick Land. And Land was a guy who really hitched his wagon into the whole neo-reaction, dark enlightenment thing. Uh, I mean, he wasn't the guy who coined it, but I mean, he was really one of the individuals, I think, who gave the most elegant uh, defense of it effectively. But Nick Land, I mean, he has just had some incredible theories. I mean, he was a professor at Warwick University in the 90s until he uh, was dismissed, went on to have a nervous breakdown in the early knots um certainly i always wish that there were maybe videos or something floating around there of his lectures apparently uh it is heyday he used to do them uh with jungle music accompanying him in the background while he lay on the floor stoned out of his mind on meth so i'm sure they must have been entertaining if nothing else maybe a little hard <laughs> to hear though uh but yeah, I mean, Land had come up with the whole notion that capitalism had essentially been the creation of an AI from the future that was coming back and had, you know, created capitalism effectively to assemble itself over the centuries. Um, yeah, so it all sort of went back to this, or it all kind of came around to this notion that uh, we were building this great future in which humanity would be replaced by something that was superior to us. So in 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 effect, that's kind of occult and that's almost lovecraftian itself oh yeah 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 well they actually ended up doing a lot of ceremonial magic after they were kicked out of warwick university they went into the whole you know road with crowley and kenneth grant and uh the mm -hmm. kabbalah of course in fact i believe they even posted this sort of online kabbalah thing that was rooted in ceremonial magic but effectively it's supposed to initiate a lot of incredible synchronicities and in whoever is using it more or less so yes it did get into a really occultic doctrine and they kind of got into the whole um atlantean and lemurian thing though unlike a lot of occult groups they actually saw the atlanteans as being the evil ones these pompous individuals who had closely guarded the you know the great mysteries and sciences of humanity for years through their different secret societies and occult orders and so forth whereas the ccru they were the lemurians they were the lords of chaos who were going to take all of this information and give it to the public and just let the cards fall where they or the chips fall where they may effectively the good the good guys Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, oh, everybody's well, the good guys. The, right. The yeah, pure, that's, all things are pure. Yeah. That, with, with, with any of these groups, they're always the good guys. That's, <laughs> that's, that's how I know to, to go the other way when they tell you we're the good guys. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Which I is, guess another group. Well, go ahead. Go ahead, Sergio. Well, I was going to ask uh, before we kind of, you know, go somewhere else. Is there anything else from that time period in the uh, that kind of early 90s uh, psychedelia and early uh, cyber culture? Is there are there any other things from that period you think are really neglected and can shine light on uh, what's going on today? Well, I mean, there's also the whole, you know, I mean, another interesting concept the CCRU had was the whole thing with Y2K and what have you. Um, see, they effectively thought that the world had ended in the year 2000, more or less. Uh, which, I mean, and really, if you sit down and think about it, I mean, in the post, you know, after we had 2000, the world really never was the same. I mean, we went yeah. from the, uh, what was it, the contested, highly contested 2000 election between Bush and Gore to 9-11 to to the Iraq yeah. invasion, to the you know economic collapse, to we're, we're pretty you know, much in this uh, um, multipolar world now. Whereas at that time there was still an argument of, as to whether it was going to be a unipolar world with the United States at the front. Yeah, so. well, I mean, not you know, not just that, but I mean, it's just really before the year two thousand. You know, there was a general consensus as to you know what reality was, more or less, yeah. and that just does not exist anymore. It doesn't, and I mean, it's been driven by a lot of things. I mean, certainly the whole cycle of quote unquote fake news and what have you is a big contributor to it, but there just is no consensus on what constitutes reality anymore, and it's just incredible. So and almost I mean, no historical perspective either. Yeah. 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 Very well said. I, I do want to point out that in the John Teeter timeline, the world did end, but it's good that he got that. Uh, he got that part from that old computer to make sure it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> Council of national policy. Now this has come up a lot and this is extremely timely because these guys are really have an influence on our culture right now and especially have an influence on conspiracy culture. Okay. And, you know, as we record, as we're recording this on June, uh, July 28th, yesterday there was this group of doctors that was taken out and like in front of the Supreme court did this little press conference and they were talking about, hydroxychloroquine and it was put on by t uh the tea party patriots was that right sergio we found out they are associated with the council of national policy so who are these people well they are certainly a great mystery um they really began to emerge in the 1980s um and i think effectively a lot of that was driven at least in part by uh, the exposure of uh, the American Security Council uh, for really a lot of years, uh, at least since the mid 1950s and so forth. I mean, the ASC was really the flagship for the far right in the United States. Um, I believe one researcher described it as the uh, the soul, if not the very heart of the military industrial complex. Uh, I mean, it pretty much all of its donors were the major defense companies of the time. It was staffed almost exclusively with former military, FBI and intelligence officers 
users. Uh, and it also functioned uh, as a, essentially a private intelligence network as well. I mean, a big part of what it did was blacklisting. Uh, it compiled massive amounts of dossiers on Americans, I think something like 4 million at its peak or something to that effect. And it also got involved in a lot of shady stuff, uh, you know, just pedophile networks, drug trafficking, arms trafficking, the whole, you know, works. So the ASC, though, had managed to really avoid a lot of public scrutiny uh, for decades. I mean, I think it got a decent write-up and power in the right by William Turner around 1970. That was the first really lengthy account of it. And it was maybe dealt with here and there by Peter Dale Scott, maybe some of the other JFK assassination researchers. But you really did not hear a lot of it until the ni- about it until the 1980s when you had books like, uh, what was it, Old Nazis, uh, The New Right, and The Republican Party by Russ Bellant, and a few other works that came out uh, in that era that really shone a light on it. <clears throat> and it seems like with these types of groups, when they start to become really high profile, they're allowed effectively to die and um, their assets are effectively transferred into more clandestine or what at the time are more clandestine groups. And with the ASC, it seems like a lot of the more reputable at least as far as these things go in this types of circles are uh, the more reputable elements went into a group that's called the center for security policy which is a really big deal in this day and age too uh, it's headed by frank gaffney and uh they have been yeah. one of the groups for instance has been massively pushing the whole you know ban on muslims in the united states and that type of thing for years now uh, the Center for Security Policy is also probably the group that's behind the uh, what I think this would be the uh, the Committee for the Present Danger Mach Four at this point. I think they're calling it what is it, the Committee <laughs> for the Present Danger China. Uh, generally speaking, we've had whenever the Committee for the Present Danger comes back, you know you're screwed. Like the first one was it brought out I think around 1950, and it was essentially the lobby group to enshrine the national security state uh, when there was some dispute over whether or not we needed a. Per- permanent national security state. So the CPD was dispatched to convince the public that it was in fact necessary. Then it was revived again in the 1970s uh, when we decided we needed a more militant foreign policy and especially to sort of pave the way for the strategic defense initiative in Star Wars and the whole thing we were talking about earlier about bankrupting the Soviet economy. So that was what the CPD CPD was up to in um, the 70s and then it was brought back again in the early knots uh you know to drum up the jingoism for the you know war against islam or that type of thing and then more recently it's been brought back yet again to start uh, rallying the troops for the new cold war with china so yeah cpt is cpd is just absolutely evil and um yeah it's not surprising that it would be the center for security policy that would be driving it in this day and age so that was one of the groups this uh the center for security policy tends to be more neocon oriented which is in keeping with the committee for the present danger since the 70s version one not mach 2 is what really launched the neoconservative movement in the first place now the council for national policy is where a lot of the old far right drifted into after the asc started to be exposed uh, the big guy, or one of the big guys who funded it in the early years, was Nelson Bunker Hunt of the infamous Hunt family of uh, Texas. I believe it was Houston, if I believe, where they were yeah. based out of. But the Hunts, you know, they have been funding far right causes for 
decades, going back to Old Man Hunt, and a lot of his children got into the act. Um, bizarrely, um, the team that I rooted for growing up in football, the Kansas City Chiefs, is owned by the Hunt family. That was a bit distressing when I learned about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of interesting. I read that uh, the Kansas City Prophets, uh, one of the guys that apparently projected that the end times, you would know the end times would be ushered in when the Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl, which they did uh, during this year. <laughs> so, oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, We have them kind of, to blame, huh? Yes, 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 apparently. Um, yes, and of course, Chiefs fans, we've been long-suffering for many years. It was the first Super Bowl Kansas City have won in 50 years or something to that effect. So it is kind of uh, you know once-in-a-lifetime type event to see the Chiefs win the Super Bowl anyway. So who knows? But um, yeah, the Hunt family, just phenomenally wealthy. Uh, they sponsored a lot of far-right causes. They were one of the big early backers of the Council for National Policy. Another one was the Coors family. Of course, the major brewing magnets, they were another one of the major sponsors for the sort of right-wing revolution that began to emerge in the 1970s. And it also brought in a lot of the dominionist types and what have you, along with the type of conventional, you know, Republic, I guess I shouldn't say conventional, the type of far-right Republicans you would expect to see associated with it. Uh, a major one was Larry McDonald, for instance, uh, the guy who died in Flight 007 in 1983 that almost uh, touched off another uh, nuclear war. Yeah. So yeah. <clears throat> The Korean airline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. KLA 007. Uh, yes, I mean, he was an early member of this group with a lot of the, you know, usual suspects that you find in these kind of circles. Um, some other interesting things about the CMP that I... Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., uh, found out from some recent research, they kind of seem like they might have been one of the groups involved in sponsoring some of these stay-behind organizations effectively in America. Um, I believe it was one of the CMP members, Messinger or something like that. Shoot, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he was effectively seems to have been one of the guys who was sponsoring uh, the Civilian Material Assistance Group, uh, which was a far-right paramilitary group. It was also tied in with an even more militant one, the Phantom uh, Brigade or something to that effect. Phantom, I think, actually, I think it was the Phantom Division, but they were based out of Memphis. Uh, both of these groups were comprised almost entirely of former special operations soldiers, not regular military. And uh, the CMA specifically was heavily involved in arms trafficking, uh, during the Iran-Contra era, which has led to a lot of speculation that they were effectively a CIA front to begin with. 
But, um, you know, like I said, they also were tied in with a lot of these paramilitary groups. Uh, they had links to the Order of St. John, uh, one of these infamous secret societies that I've talked about a lot on the farm. Uh, the Sovereign Order of St. John actually seems like it was one of the major groups that was tasked with running the American stay-behind groups for years to begin with. And incidentally, uh, Larry McDonald was a member of the Sovereign Order of St. John. I've got actually a collection of his personal papers where he talks about that. So, yeah, you had these kind of clandestine things that were going on with Iran-Contra, with these stay-behinds. And that was a big deal during uh, the Reagan years. I mean, this is when they had started to come up with the whole Rex 84 thing. And I do think there's a good chance that that's one of the reasons why the militia culture really started to take off in that era. You know, I mean, they had anticipated that there could be massive civil unrest. And um, these militia groups, you know, I mean, they have a long history of being used to disperse that kind of stuff in this country, going back to the American Protective League during the First World War. Mm-hmm. So almost set up as kind of like a in, a in a certain way of like a continuity of government. We could use these guys kind of thing. Oh, in, yeah. In, in, case, in case Red Dawn happened. <clears throat> yeah, essentially. Well, I mean, that was the same <clears throat> kind of concept with the European stay behind ones. I mean, effectively, you know, in the uh, the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, the early, early Cold War, there was this perspective that. A war with the Soviet Union was inevitable, so there would be a nuclear exchange that would knock out most of the major cities in Europe and what have you, and then we would drop the Green Berets in, and they would link up with all of these stay-behind units that we had been setting up, and these would be the groups that would go out and destroy what was left of the Soviet army for us. And presumably the same type of thing was planned here, where we would have cities that would be knocked out, so there would be a lot of civil unrest. So, you know, we can use the Green Berets here, too, and they'll link up with these militias and what have you and provide us with a ready-made security force. That is an interesting thought. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I've never thought of it that way. I have declassified documents on the CMA from the FBI, which talks about a certain uh, special forces group specifically working with the CMA. And this is a special forces group. I have credible links to training Ku Klux Klan members and what have you in the 1960s. So, yeah, that definitely seems like this was very much a thing where these Green Berets and these other special operations forces were working with these far right groups in these stay behind efforts. Cause I mean, the document I have specifically talks about how these things would be initiated in the event of a nuclear war, the special forces group specifically, that's what they were designed for. They were domestic. And that's another interesting thing. They were domestic oriented special forces group, a green beret outfit that was going to be deployed in the event of a nuclear war and was working with these far right militias. So you do the math. So in absence of a, um, uh, an, an invasion force in a cold war what does stay behind what does that really mean for today or what are the implications for it it seems like it would mean a domestic political situation yeah well i mean that was essentially what you know they were looking at with rex 84 i mean at that point in time they had kind of realized there probably wouldn't be a uh, an actual hot war but the things related to the Cold War and destruction of the Soviet Union might cause a lot of civil unrest, the type of thing we're seeing now, a lot of rioting and what have you. 
So what happens if the police forces and what have you become overwhelmed? Well, you've got to use the military. But I mean, you know, we have all these was I mean, almost 200 uh, countries in the world. We have military bases in or something to that effect. You know, we've got a lot of other military commitments around the world, so we can't just deploy our troops in mass. So we've got to have some auxilias to help them out a little bit. So one source would definitely be these militias, which incidentally almost always are comprised of ex-military and law enforcement people as their core members. So, you know, that's a, a very convenient place to look for. And another one, obviously, would be private contractors. <laughs> yes. Yes. Which kind of brings... Which, it, this all... Yeah, it all relates to what is exactly happening right now. Yes. Yes. And the last interview that we did with you, we didn't really realize that this was probably going to happen, but we talked about Eric Prince and formerly Blackwater and how there's essentially a private army being assembled and now what's going on in Portland and what's about to happen as we're recording this in other cities. Uh, this is essentially what we're seeing. Some of these feds that are being sent to these cities are actually paramilitary and uh, private. essentially, yeah, essentially mercenaries that are being hired. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they already kind of laid the ground for this, um, especially in the uh, during the Obama years um, with the, uh, you know, the Dakota Access protests. Eventually, the uh, the company hired Tiger Swan, I believe is what it was called, a PMC to go after the protesters. And, you know, I mean, this is a big deal. I mean, Tiger Swan was founded by ex-members of the Delta Force. And they're specifically saying that we're going to start employing the counterinsurgency tactics that we were using in, you know, the numerous wars we've been fighting for the last 20 years or so domestically. And that should really scare the hell out of everybody. Mm -hmm. But it really just didn't seem to register at the time. So now, unfortunately, you know, we're going to the next level. Now we're actually starting to see a lot of this civil unrest and what have you developing that the military has been, you know, wargaming for essentially for the last decade or so now. It's finally starting to happen. And, uh, yeah, well, they're going to the people that uh, I think they have really been setting up for this task, and that is these private military companies. I mean, these are almost all staffed with former special operations forces, a lot of guys from SEAL Team 6, from Delta Force, and their whole thing is counterinsurgency, which is exactly what you would be doing for large-scale unrest here. Counterinsurgency, that's what this whole doctrine was developed for. The U.S. military has been refining it now, really for decades, but especially in the last uh, you know, 19, 20 years now since 9-11 uh, happened. Um, you have all of these veterans now that have been brought into these private military companies, and you have all the guys you know, from the U.K., I mean, even from Chile and a whole bunch of other countries that they've been recruited from. It's kind of ironic, actually. I mean, all the years that the far right was, you know, warning about you know, troops from China or whatever being right. brought in under the auspices of the UN. Well, probably when we do get the foreign troops here, they're going to come in the form of these private military companies, which do recruit very heavily from foreign services. So, yeah, I mean, you're going to start seeing probably more and more of this going forward, especially 
with the police forces being overwhelmed and essentially afraid to really do much of anything. Um, you know, so now you start bringing out the private contractors who, among other things, also give you another level of legal deniability. Uh, you can always blame the company if stuff goes wrong. So. Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, one of the things that I've noticed, um, and this is a sensitive subject, but one of the things I've noticed in some of the mass shootings that have taken place, especially the one in Orlando at the, um, the nightclub, you know, that guy was directly associated with one of these like private contractors, security contractors. And there just always seems to be like this weird kind of element that I can't really quite put my finger on whether some of that stuff is, you know, like the conspiracy theorists say that there is some kind of false flag thing going on there. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is something that, I mean, you really do have to consider uh, because, I mean, once again, you know, if you were going to run a false flag, I mean, a PMC would be a logical entity to use for such a thing. Because on the one hand, they have access to highly trained former military personnel. And on the other hand, they do give you a level of plausible deniability if any of this stuff ever actually does come out. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interesting connections with the whole thing in Florida. Uh, you could also look at the Las Vegas shooting, which I think is another one that's very sketchy as well. And, uh, in the case of the Vegas guy, I mean, he was what, I mean, essentially an arms uh, trafficker basically. So, yeah, I mean, that's what it really seems like. And I mean, that's really what it obviously seemed to be. And the, you know, the police have come out and said that, you know, they're, that they don't know, you know, but there was a lot of weird stuff with that that you were seeing come out and the same with the orlando uh the the, i guess that was what two years before that i mean there was just such weird just such weirdness that that i think part of the orlando stuff was that does the police went in there and just i think they went in with guns blazing and they might have killed actually killed some of the people just inadvertently i think that that was part of it well, then, of course, but, they had the shooting later at the uh, the school, I think, effectively, where the police, you know, refused to do anything. More yeah. Or less. Well, you know, what was and I remember this really specifically. What was strange about that Orlando nightclub shooting was that that singer was killed the night before. By this crazed fan. Oh, yes. yes that yes. Uh, that shot her and the brother and her brother like wrestled him down to the ground. And then he killed himself. Yeah. And I mean, is that, I mean, that was bizarre. It was almost just like that was supposed to have been it, but then it failed. So somebody went to plan B and I'm really not saying that this is like the Democrats are doing cause they want to take your guns. I, what I'm saying is, is just more like what, you know, who are these private military contract, these, these security contractors, who are they working for? You just don't know. You don't know what agenda is being really – these people that are just in the shadows. Well, and I mean in a lot of ways it makes sense for the private military industry from an economic standpoint as well because, I mean, really it creates more business for them with these – you know, I mean if theoretically if they are involved in some of these mass shootings because a lot of times what happens when they occur at a nightclub or you know a Vegas casino or something like that, well, they decide to hire more private security. So yeah, um, yeah, it's a major. Yeah, and it, that's a good point. It reminds me of like you were talking about the way that so many uh, members of the KGB were 
responsible for things that ultimately ultimately led to the dissolution of the USSR is part of what we're seeing now, this push for decentralization, this strategy of tension. Um, are, is this to empower uh, the only ones who are going to be you know, left, which are the private security companies? Like this kind of feudal, chaotic world is what they flourish in. Yeah, well, I mean, it, you know, it makes it, it really does make you wonder, because like we were talking about earlier before with these these spies, you know, not the desk jockeys, but the guys who are working in the field. And a lot of times these type of people are ex-special uh, operators in the first place, because they're really the only guys that have the kind of training to survive for extended periods of time and the, uh, the type of circumstances that these deep cover guys get into. But anyway, you know, so these guys, I mean, they all have ultimately dubious loyalties and they effectively have to to survive in the first place and what happens in a lot of cases is that the spies and the special operators become closer to one another and collaborating together than the intelligence services that they're Mm -hmm. theoretically working for so now you fast forward to the 1980s or you know the aftermath of that the cold war ends i mean all of these you know these ex-KGB guys and their equivalent in special forces, they're released from their services, theoretically. You have the same thing happening in the U.S. And the Russians, you know, I mean, they start forming private military companies, too. A really interesting one in that regard is um, Far West Limited, which has also been linked to 9-11, interestingly. And that had a lot of interesting people involved with it. Um, the big arms dealer, what's his name, Kasabi or whatever, the, um, the Saudi, oh, oh, shoot, I can't remember his name now. But he was a guy involved with them. Um, what was it? Halliburton, I believe, was actually a stockholder in it. So that connects up with Cheney and all that other kind of stuff. But, I mean, okay, so you've got this situation where you've got these private military companies. You've got former Russian KGB and special forces guys working in them. You've got former you know, intelligence and military guys from South Africa, from the United States, from Israel, from the UK, and so on and so forth. It's this vast network. All of these guys are now openly collaborating together, uh, you know, and they start, you know, that you brought them all together in this very profitable industry. So what happens if they start thinking about the future? What happens, you know, I mean, if they start eroding the governments more? I mean, they know how to do it. You know, they just spent the, you know, the whole Cold War era destabilizing governments and what have you. What if you keep pushing for this more and more? That's only going to empower this private network even more so and make things even more profitable and lucrative for them. And I mean, I think that's, you know, I always kind of point at it. But when you look at the Trump administration, uh, I really think that whole SCL Cambridge Analytica network is what you need to focus on because that was what was behind Brexit as well. It was a huge force in bringing Trump to power here in the United States. It's a British company, but it's linked in, you know, to American CMP types like the DeVos family and Steve Bannon. It's linked into the Israelis and their intelligence services with the Mossad and what have you. There's also, I mean, it's not as firm, but there's a good chance that there's probably some Russians involved with it. It seems like there's some nationalist Chinese through the Eric Prince faction involved with it. So basically, you know, you've got this network of ex-military and intelligence officers centered around SCL, Cambridge Analytica, that really initiated Brexit and Trump. 
are they doing this because they're genuinely nationalists or is it for an agenda of their own, essentially? I mean, that makes an interesting question. Really, you know, it's very ominous with the world that we're currently living in now. Yeah, there's an agents, an agents of chaos kind of aspect to it, too. Yeah, but I mean, it does make you wonder, did all of these spooks and these special operators, you know, sit down and finally decide, you know, look, we're sick and tired of making these corporations all of this money. I mean, you know, we know how to destabilize the world, essentially. I mean, we've been trained to do it for decades now. We've seen it done in practice. We've done it ourselves. Why don't we just do that? I mean, in all the chaos, we're the ones who are really going to make a uh, killing out of all of it, ultimately. Yeah. The, so the closest... I want to say real quick, the closest failed state that uh, to us, of course, is our southerly uh, neighbor, Mexico. And what uh, are these uh, what does the situation look like there for private security and military? I'm sure is it's probably booming. I, I'd, I'd add probably Brazil to that, too. Yeah, no, I would imagine certainly. I mean, well, I mean, I want to say I think. In South America, I mean, that was already a big industry there for the um, mm-hmm. the American companies because, I mean, obviously CEOs and executives for these companies that are working there, I mean, they've been targets for kidnapping for yeah. years now. I mean, really going back, I think, to like the 70s or the 80s when that really started to become a big thing. So, I mean, yeah, that's that's a huge thing in Brazil. They kidnap people left so, and right. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, the private military companies have already been making a lot of money off of that for decades. And in fact, they even made that um, that movie essentially uh, glorifying the one company. I think like Russell Crowe was in it, maybe Ryan Proof of Life uh, or something like that, maybe. Um, Okay, yeah, I was I was thinking maybe you talk about the movie where uh, the uh, the one with Chris Hemsworth that Netflix put out. Uh, no, this was year. I mean, this was actually before yeah. private military companies became a big thing. I think yeah. it was released like the late '90s, very early knots or something like that. But, but that's um, essentially what that movie is about. I forget the name of it. Extreme Measures or something like that. But yeah, he, yeah, he's essentially a mercenary that he. But yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's been a big industry for a lot of these PMCs, uh, especially the British ones, really, for a lot of years. Um, I know, I think it was like Controlled Risks and Keeny Meeny and those type of groups have been active in the Latin yeah. American countries for a very long time now. So, yeah, and I mean, I would imagine just the whole situation with the world's going in now, I mean, it's only going to mean even more money. I mean, in Mexico especially, I mean, you have a situation where, I mean, a lot of cases, the drug cartels are better armed and trained than the police and the military even are so <laughs> yeah you know all this really makes me think of a do you remember the uh, the show the television show jericho do you oh yeah that? i love jericho so i mean that was basically the plot was just like there was a private military company that caused this the, all the cities to be destroyed and the nuclear wep by nuclear mm. weapons and they essentially were taking the country over yeah, trying to reconstitute with a new, essentially, corporate form of government or something. To yeah. That effect. yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, certainly it does seem like a rather prophetic uh, series in the uh, 21st, yeah. uh, the, the most recent decade, uh, sadly. I think it only lasted like two seasons. Though. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much good. one and a half seasons. But so there's a concept that I wanted to talk to you about. We talked a little bit about this with David Metcalf, um, kind of on a Patreon episode, but he kind of brought this up. And I hear it referred to as fourth generation, and I also hear it referred to as fifth generation. But the concept of, of this kind of like infra- warfare that's based on just 
muddying the waters of information. And I really think that's what we're really under right now. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's really, you know, I mean, it's just another variation on political warfare, ultimately, or psychological warfare, depending upon, um, you know, what you want to call it. But again, I mean, I think a lot of this, especially in the United States, it was a long term project that like a lot of things went back uh, to the American Security Council. Um, They had this uh, this what was it kind of it was called the Institute for American Strategy. it was sort of related to the American Security Council. I mean, it had essentially a lot of the same guys. John Fisher, for instance, who was the longtime chairman of the ASC, was also like the main guy in the Institute for American Strategy. But theoretically, they were separate until uh, I think like the 70s when they merged into one another. But uh, that was probably more of a plausible deniability than anything. But um, the thing with the Institute for American Strategy, I mean, it was highly staffed with a lot of psychological warfare officers. Um, and there were some interesting guys in there. Uh, one of them who was working with it was Stefan Pizzoni, who uh, was essentially the architect of the Strategic Defense Initiative, uh, Star Wars and all that stuff. But the interesting thing about this guy, man he had a long-term interest in the UFO question as well, and uh, he was also on the Robertson panel, uh, the infamous Robinson panel, I think from like 51 or 52 mm. or something like that. But that was, you know, the big meeting that the different intelligence surfaces had had about the UFO question. And their whole thing was essentially that the American public needed a massive propaganda blitz in regards to the UFO question, which was interesting because there was only one psychological warfare officer who was active in the entire Robinson panel, and that was Stefan Pisoni who would go on to work with the American Security Council, which had enormous ties to the UFO movement. They had multiple members who were on NICAP. They were the agency or the entity that was really behind spreading the mythos for Hangar 18. They were involved in spreading the mythos for Area 51. Just years and years of manipulation of the UFO movement. Okay. Another guy involved with the Institute for American Strategy was Edward Lansdale. General Edward Lansdale, psychological warfare officer par excellence, who also embarked upon a lot of very strange methods of psychological warfare overseas. For instance, when he was in the Philippines, he became notorious for having his men puncture holes in the necks of dead insurgents, hang them from trees and drain them of blood so that the natives would think that vampires had killed them. Yeah, <laughs> At one yeah. Point, at one point, he wanted to target insurgents insurgents in a, uh, a village there, so he sent his men in and had them uh, paint Masonic all-seeing eyes on the doors across from the suspected insurgents. It's very much a precursor to the to the Phoenix program. Oh, yes, yes. Now, Lansdale was an early advisor and that kind of stuff. But, I mean, the big thing you got to remember with Lansdale, he was all about using the superstitions and myths of the people that he was targeting in his psychological yep. warfare operations. <laughs> so the question kind of becomes when he's brought back to the United States and involved in crafting psychological warfare for the American Security Council network, would he do the same thing here? Well, I think he definitely would have. 
And that's really interesting because pretty much all of the conspiratorial rights stuff comes out of the American Security Council. I mean, there was massive overlap with the ASC and the John Birch Society, which is where all of your, you know, your anti-UN, your anti-Federal Reserve type conspiracy theories come from. There was a lot of overlap with the Liberty Lobby, which is where a lot of your Holocaust denial and anti-Semitic type conspiracy theories come from. And there was a lot of overlap with the Minutemen, which is where, which was sort of the foundation for what became the posse comitatus, the free man on the land, and of course the militia culture. So you could kind of go back and, you know, look at this and think, well, maybe the American Security Council created a lot of these alternative movements, which is really ominous when you look at the fact that, you know, it seems like a lot of them were being directed by full-blown psychological warfare officers. And they would keep adding to their collection of this. Another interesting guy who ended up working for the ASC in the 1980s was a psychological warfare officer who went by the name of Colonel Michael Aquino. Hmm. Michael Aquino, the author of From PSYOP to Mind War, which he co-wrote with his commanding officer at the time, a guy who went on to become a general. He was uh, Paul Valvoli. And uh, incidentally, Paul Valvoli is the highest ranking military officer to come out and claim that the QAnon collective is real and are actually former military intelligence officers. Isn't that incredible? The guy who wrote From PSYOP to Mind War with Michael Aquino is promoting QAnon who are telling you that Trump <laughs> is going to initiate martial law to destroy the satanic pedophiles. Yeah, you talk about, talk about um, taking advantage of the superstitions of your target. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, this is kind of like a bit of a preview, too, for what I'm going to get into with Strange Realities Gone, so I don't want to give too much away. But, yeah, uh, yes. yeah, you guys can kind of see, though, there's really some interesting things with how the superstitions of the American public have been manipulated. And I think, you know, you're just seeing it, you know, just being, you know, a massive uptick of it, and especially since the beginning of the 21st century. And some of that, you know, I mean, I think was almost inevitably due to the rise of the Internet. I mean, just now people have access to so much more information than they have at any other time in human history, really. So, I mean, how do you counter that? Well, you just keep feeding them more and more bullshit. I mean, that's really the only thing you can yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we talked a lot about like, you know, the rush, there's the Russian troll farm and there's all that, but like a lot of things that get shared, that get shared on social media, especially Facebook are memes and they really just boil things down to like simple points. There's nothing complex about them. And some of the ones that we've noticed and like, we've noticed a lot of this lately, especially as it deals with the whole pizza gate slash Q thing, which is really kind of, the same thing continued is this like if you this whole like you know you were talking about spiritualized d demonically spiritualizing your opponents i mean that's essentially what is being done when you're saying that the other side of the political fence are essentially all child molester molesting baby uh, satanist baby eaters you know and that's essentially what's what's happening yeah, and, I mean, you're essentially trying to rally people for a crusade. I mean, that's really yeah. what you're talking about, you know. Right. And I think a lot right. of the concentration on the on the child abuse stuff is just to – Adam's always talking about how it seems like just to get that, uh, you know, animal part of people's uh, brains, you know. It's, it's like yes, just the gut. Brain. 
No, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, you know, it's not to say that the Clintons aren't evil. I mean, I certainly think that they are evil. But I mean, yes, you know, we've just gotten to the point where they have become just a full blown caricature. And uh, I mean, when you really even get back to this just whole mythos around the Clintons, I mean, it was all bankrolled by Richard Mellon Scafee who was another, you know, I mean, former CIA guy who had also invested a ton of money in these far-right causes over the years. He was another guy like the Hunt family and that type of thing, the Coors family, certainly the same level. So, again, you know, the whole mythos of the Clintons is the ultimate personification of evil comes from a right-wing uh, backer and former CIA guy asset, essentially. So, yeah, it's just, you know, it's a bunch of theater when you really get down to it. Uh, it really is. And it's just, you know, it's amazing that, I mean, it's had this kind of sway and this sort of mainstream acceptance now. I mean, I had to go back effectively and rewrite the intro of uh, my Epstein book, the first installment in the series for Epstein, uh, just to kind of note the fact that through QAnon, this kind of stuff has gained just unprecedented mainstream acceptance now. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not to say that, you know, definitely Epstein happened. You know, you've got cases like the, uh, the, uh, the, the Omaha case, you know, um, you mean the Nebraska case. Yeah. Franklin. Yeah. Yeah, Franklin cover up, all that. I mean, all that stuff has been you there's paper trails for all that. Yeah, even I the mean, finder this... even the finders case, as weird as it is, there's paper trail for yeah. all that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, my buddy John Brisson is actually working on a book on that, which I think is just gonna but, be excellent. But I mean, you know, this is good happen. propaganda has a basis in truth. Absolutely. Yeah. This is what I always tell people. And I mean, even, you know, when you get to the occult stuff, there is a basis for that. I mean, the big part of the first Epstein book is really going to focus on Perfumo. And there's all kinds of weird stuff going on with Perfumo. Trust me. So, I mean, there is a basis in reality for this stuff. But I mean, just what QAnon has done with it, just the absurd levels that it's been taken to, it's 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 incredible. I mean, it really is. Yeah. Well, well and so, even if some real information is exposed um, in the process, still knowing who the source um, of of this information is and who is pushing this agenda and what goals they're trying to accomplish by using it. I mean, it doesn't you know it doesn't matter if, if there is actual truth in it you still you can still be being manipulated by someone else with truth even yeah it's selective truth the idea of, of the QAnon as being kind of an alternate reality game yeah and i mean it kind of goes back to what i was talking about before i mean it's just another you know tool that's being used to really effectively break down the fabric of reality you know, what have we once all had a consensus reality and that doesn't exist anymore. And it's, you know, the process of this has only been sped up because of the stuff like QAnon and what have well, you. Yeah, it seems like it's the it's a chaotic environment that's being created to facilitate this kind of psy war to make it more uh, easier to do, just like in the same way that you would destabilize a country in the actual, you know, where the actual police forces did not have control or the military didn't have control, then you could run militias or do whatever you wanted. This is creating that type of, uh, it's creating that type of uh, information environment that facilitates this type of information war that lets you conduct your information war 
Yeah, and I mean, this is something, I mean, the alt-right is just all about. I mean, they pretty much have telegraphed it with the whole, you know, shitlords thing and what have you. You know, I mean, it really is just basically coming out and proclaiming that you're a lord of chaos. I mean, we're even essentially seeing chaos magic weaponized by the alt-right for this purpose in and of itself. So, I mean, yeah, you know, we are just seeing some really just... You know, I mean, unprecedented. I mean, I'm sure there's probably a precedent for this type of thing in antiquity or something like that. But there's just sort of open, really just magical war that's playing out. Because, I mean, really, you know, when you get down mm-hmm. to it, political warfare, 4G, you know, W, uh, psychological warfare, it really is just a form of weaponized magic, which, again, is something I'm going to get into the conspiracy, uh, the strange realities con. So I don't want to say too much about that. But it is effectively a kind of weaponized magic. Yes, we've been uh, we've been looking into. Well, we had a really great uh, UFO roundtable on Leah Haley, who uh, was a, a originally an abductee, I guess, who changed her story more into like a mind control thing. And we were kind of exploring this idea that that the UFO world. I know we were touching on some of this earlier, but it was like a perhaps it was just like a petri dish, and still is for learning how to conduct. Um, these type of operations, learning how to uh, uh, create belief in people, spread memes. And uh, have you heard of this guy, Colonel John B. Alexander? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very familiar with Mr. Alexander. Yeah. And he he came up in this as being pretty closely tied to some of these people, uh, ex-military people who are involved in – uh, who were involved in MUFON down there in Florida where this case had happened. And so, you know, even continuing on what's going on now in the UFO world, it seems like these same type of uh, operations. Yeah. And I mean, Alexander, you know, these are the kinds of people when you really pull back the curtain, you find running the whole UFO movement. And I mean, an interesting thing about Alexander is he's also considered to be one of the uh, the pioneers of a quote unquote non-lethal warfare. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And I mean, you know, again, there's an interesting thing about that. So Alexander was really known when he uh, hooked up with, uh, what's his name, General Albert Stubbeline or whatever it is, um, in the 1980s. This is uh, when he was at INSCOM and they were doing the spoon bending parties for the upper brass and going to the Monroe Institute so they could learn <laughs> how to remote view and all that good stuff. Okay, so how did Alexander hook up with Stubbeline? Well, that's an interesting story that he gets into in his uh, his book on UFOs. The guy who put them in contact together was uh, General Richard Steelwell. Steelwell had a fascinating career, to put it mildly. Um, let's see. He was heavily involved in setting up the open opium trafficking in uh Asia in the 1950s and Thailand and what have you, working with the KMT to help, uh, you know, sponsor the Chinese nationalists by selling heroin in the United States and what have you. Uh, from there, he ended up going to Vietnam about a decade or so later and became a major figure in the Phoenix program. Uh, he also helped set up the Joint Special Operations Command, which was, you know, I've talked about that in my book, but that's another great outfit. So Steelwell, you know, did a lot of fascinating things uh drug trafficking arms trafficking setting up clandestine militaries all that kind of good stuff and this was the guy who put alexander and stubbeline in contact with each other according to alexander he also had a keen interest in ufos for whatever reason now fast forward about to the end of the 1980s now alexander and stillwell are both out of the uh military 
and they end up in an interesting organization called uh, what was it? The U.S. Global Security Council, I believe. Um, it was another one of these groups that came out of the dissolution of the American Security Council, effectively. I mean, almost all of the guys with it had strong ties to the ASC, like Admiral Thomas Moore, uh, Ray Klein, who was an infamous CIA officer. He had helped set up the World Anti-Communist League, which was kind of the international version of uh, the American Security Council. Uh, Jesus, you had a bunch of people with the Unification Church who were tied into all of this. So just really, really far right circles in the USGSC. And here you have John Alexander working for them specifically to promote non-lethal warfare. And I mean, he's in here with like Donald Rumsfeld and what have you. And incidentally, the first secretary of defense to actually sponsor non-lethal warfare was Richard Cheney, who signed off on it when he was uh, the secretary of defense under Bush one. So I've always kind of wondered about that because Cheney and Rumsfeld were, of course, really buddy buddy. And Alexander is in uh, the USGSC or Rumsfeld in the early 90s, while Cheney is the secretary of defense. So, yeah, you got to kind of wonder if there were some strings uh, pulled for that to start getting some of Alexander's pet projects funding. But, um, yes, I mean, Alexander is another guy who came out of the same network that I've been describing earlier. And he is yet another one of these characters who ends up running uh, the UFO movement. Uh, He's also involved uh, in the Association of Former Intelligence Officers in the Las Vegas chapter with Colonel Michael Aquino. Or at least he was. Mm-hmm. I, there's some speculation Aquino's about to die. Hopefully, um, <laughs> I shouldn't say hopefully. Yeah, I, I, really, I think I, heard I really wanted. He, he did die. Yeah. Oh, he, he did, did die. die. Okay. Yeah. I, it's, I'm, the only thing that I'm really sad about that is I really wanted to interview Aquino, but um, doesn't look like I'm gonna get a chance to do that. <laughs> yeah. Or wait, actually, he didn't. He didn't die, right? He was. Um, he's preparing was the to ascend or something like that, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> because they. Yeah, they. They. They have the whole Egyptian thing going on. Apparently, yes. He wasn't supposed to ascend until September 1st. So, yeah, I've been thinking about trying to email somebody there anyway and maybe see if I could get a deathbed confession or something like that. You know, there's always a chance. I would love to ask well, him he's about flo- his, He's floating uh, around uh, one of his the three aspects of his soul, I guess, has uh, yeah, achieved yeah. immortality. So maybe you could just channel it. It's his car. <laughs> his, his car. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, I would love to. I would. I would love you to ask him about his uh, Star Wars fan um, fiction. Oh yes, yes. Gosh, yeah. He wrote. You know the, about that? The Return of the. Yeah, yeah. He actually wrote like a fan fiction about the Sith, and <laughs> it was really interesting because I think when he wrote that, the only reference to the Sith had been in like the tie-in book for the first Star Wars or something like that, and he immediately latched onto the concept of the Sith. So yeah. Yeah, like great. Darth Vader was the hero of. Of the whole of of uh, his fan fiction, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's that's pretty much in keeping from a guy who described National Socialism as what the ultimate personification of political power or something to that effect. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I I tell you, um, and there's a lot of interesting stuff about Aquino. I mean, you're getting into, and I know you can kind of we can kind of like stumble into the Satanic Panic stuff a little bit with him, but there's some weird stuff with the Presidio and all that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, 
I mean, it's just it's I mean, I've always been reluctant, though, to really think that Aquino was too closely involved in that kind of stuff for the simple reason that the guy was practically like a cartoon villain or something to that effect. I mean, yeah, good, you good would surely, you know, think that he would keep a lower profile if he was actually running like a child abuse ring or something. I mean, this is all like unfolding at the same time that he's like appearing on Oprah dressed up like Bella Lugosi <laughs> or something like that. And, he looks more like Uncle Fester. Yes. You know, it's just like, really? Like, <laughs> was, was he on the uh, Geraldo Rivera? It wouldn't surprise uh, me. Special. I think he made the circuit. Yeah, he made the yeah. circuit. I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I actually, he did his first talk show. It was like Phil Donahue back like in the early 70s, I think, when Donahue was like still based out of like, what was it, Drayton, Ohio or something like that. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, no, he had been doing the whole highly theatrical thing for many, many decades, um, which is why, yeah, it just, it seems, I mean, well, it was definitely an act. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But, I mean, yeah, this guy was already, like, a celebrity within, like, conspiracy circles in the 1980s before his name even started to get leaked and enlarged to the press and what have you. Well, I mean, like, the Satanism is one thing, but... You know, but then you, his his links to being a psychological warfare specialist. I mean, that's the part that a lot of people don't hop. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Well, just just like UFOs, you know, could be this petri dish. I mean, we've already we've already been talking about the occult and secret societies. I mean, it's yeah. I'm sure it's a great pool that it's a great uh, grounds to do all kinds of operations. Um, so you know, he's, he was probably. More, I'm sure he, you know, had his own dark spirituality, but he's probably uh, very interested in, in just those implications. Yeah, I mean, I think that was definitely a big part of what it was engaged in. It was certainly an aspect of psychological warfare, no doubt. Um, I don't want to get into that too much, but, you know, I yeah, definitely yeah. I've got an examination, a really in-depth examination about what actually in terms of psychological warfare or, Kino might have been up to with the occult that I'm working on right now. Interesting. And you're also, uh, because we're kind of winding down here, so I know you got to get going in a little bit, but uh, you're also helping out the uh, Penny Royal guys, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's going to be great. Um, You know, and that all kind of plays into this as well, because, I mean, there was just there was a lot of weird occult stuff that was going on in that whole area and then up into Ohio uh, in the 1970s. Uh, Obviously, you know, you had a Kino there in Louisville and um, that kind of quasi civil war that the Church of Satan had in Drayton, Ohio, that Aquino was involved in. And then you had some a strange group of Kenneth Grant disciples that were active around. Cincinnati and maybe had ended up going down into Kentucky that we're kind of looking into. So, yeah, some very strange stuff all going in there. And then, of course, Cincinnati in and of itself uh, was a city that was founded by a member of a secret society you don't hear a lot about. That was the Society of Cincinnati. Uh, So it was founded by that. And uh, its most prominent family was probably the Taft family who immigrated there from New England. And guess who was a co-founder of Skull and Bones? Alfonso Taft. So very interesting legacy of secret societies in that whole area. All these different all these different connections. Well, Recluse, this has been fascinating, man. Um, you know, it's always great to have you on, and we really—I I could talk to you for another 
another two hours, I think, with just the amount of <laughs> the amount of knowledge that you have. You know, in our current environment, there's a lot of people who I have a lot in common with. I do share a lot of ideas with um, in a reaction to, uh, I guess, what would be called globalism. Um, but uh, in the reaction to that, they have, I feel like, been really led into another extreme, into something that I don't think they would like either. Um, so I would just encourage people, you know, we really don't try to be too political on here, and we're not really into analyzing the the news too much or trying to, you know, help people keep up with our analysis of it. But, you know, I would just say um, be very wary right now. And, and I think uh, uh, if you do really want to keep abreast of events, I would I would say definitely follow uh, Stephen's work. Uh, it can really help you unravel things that are going on in current times. Yeah, I second that. And I think it's just like what you've described too the right side of the pyramid. We have to be weary of that and we we've got to be uh, we've got to see where the where propaganda is coming from because it's not all from the left-hand side. It's from the right-hand side too. And a lot of these groups they act just like they say that others that they castigate act like yeah. In fact, well, that's I mean, one thing I've noticed, Stephen, and you've talked about this too, is that there's this weird psychology in some of these groups where they will talk about, like, cancel national policy. You know, like, I'm sure that they don't like the Council on Foreign Relations. However, they act just like it. Yeah. Tactically wise. Well, yeah. I mean, that was even the whole name of it, essentially, was meant to be a play on the Council on Foreign Relations or the Council for National Policy. National. <laughs> policy yeah so yeah. yes yes but i mean yeah i mean it's you know it's kind of interesting but yeah that's just really a common tactic really of uh reactionaries effectively you accuse your adversaries of your own uh degradations and so forth and ironically i mean this was something that was um enshrined in the protocols of the learned elders of zion yeah concept yeah. of accusing your enemies of uh your own outrages which in turn was fabricated by or most likely was fabricated by the czarist secret police so you know, I kind of think in a sense that whole little bit putting into the protocols might have been a bit of a, a Freudian projection on the uh, the part of the czar's secret police in the first place. Yeah. Interesting. So. Interesting. Well, where can people find your book, Stephen? And also, where can they find The Farm? Well, you can find the book at Amazon and also uh, for the PDF version at our official website for the, or the yeah. official store for The Farm. That is the farmpodcast.store. That's, again, all one word, the farm podcast dot store. And then you can find us at the farm podcast dot uh, com, I believe. <laughs> so anyway, yes, you can find us at the farm podcast or the farm store to get the book. And then also there's my blog, which is visaview.blogspot.com. I haven't been doing quite as much with the blog lately because I'm scrambling to try to finish up the Epstein book in time for the elections. But I'm definitely hoping getting into October, I'll be able to get back to doing some more current events stuff there. And obviously, we're going to be doing a lot of election stuff on the farm uh, when we get closer to the season. But um some of these series and what have you I've been working on, especially the Wacko one, they're really going to pay off when we get close to the election. Uh, trust me on that. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, keep it, keep it going. You're really doing a good job with it. 
And uh, I want to thank you for coming on and stay on the line for us. But we're going to close this section out and we'll be back Absolutely. to close out this show on Good Spirit Normal. finish this up guys um that was a great show with recluse i'm always happy to have him on uh what did you think about that man i think i ask you that every show yeah i think uh i think that was that was pretty cool we touched on uh, almost well i think everything we wanted to and then some Um, we've both been listening to the farm a lot it's been really cool to see uh the man behind the spider reveal his identity you know because when he was first blogging and stuff he was just like really i don't even think you know we were i think the first time we had him on the show we were asking him uh well can we say your name are you just recluse or what's up yeah 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 he was real mysterious at the yeah yeah you know like i don't think we even i don't think we did say his name um but you know, if you if if you do want to see what Recluse looks like, you know, disappointing guys, he's not a big spider. Um, he doesn't Damn. look like Shelob from Lord of the Rings, <laughs> but he uh, he is going to be speaking at the Strange Realities Conference, as we alluded to several times. And to get your tickets, guys, they are now twenty dollars, and we've got a great lineup of people that are going to be there, including Alan Greenfield and John Tinney and Soraya from where did the road go? Greg Bishop, Joshua Cutchin, Timothy Renner, Tim Banal, Kiki Dombrowski, Jenny Ashford. I'm sure I'm leaving people out. It's like WrestleMania. Just, just, just to name a few. So, uh, that's what we've got guys. You really, you know, this is, this is kind of like a once in a lifetime opportunity. You don't really have anything else to do right now. So come join us at Strange Realities Conference. Get your tickets. That's linked up to strangerealitiesconference.com. So anything else that we want to add to this episode? Well, what do you think about it, Adam? I thought that it was everything that I expected it to be. I think we covered a lot of good ground. I'm glad that we got in the talk about uh, psychological warfare and fourth generation or fifth generation depending on that definition seems to change that that term seems to change depending on who you talk to um that's just like the levels of different warfare uh you can kind of look look at that for yourself but um that's definitely something that i think that we're under right now i mean there's just so much yeah that is going on right now and so many people that are vying for your attention to try to get you as an American citizen to do what they want you to do. And both like foreign as we and domestic, both foreign and domestic. And as we said before, be careful, be careful about what you're seeing, what you're looking at. It's not all, you know, you, it might, it might affirm your confirmation bias, but if you dig a little bit deeper, it's usually not something that's in your best interest. Yeah, they have bring, that's just the they, way that it yeah. is. They have essentially uh, brought the Psy War home. Yeah. And uh, that's that's our our current environment and the uh, the different interests uh, that might seek to gain from chaos, decentralization, all these things we're talking about. 
Um, this this is really uh, really real, and I don't uh, I'm not as doomsday as a lot of people, but mm-hmm. you know the the uh, parallels we have in what we were talking about today in the uh, dissolution of the USSR is really striking. You yeah. know that 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 people at that level of a state w- could actively seek to dismantle the state to personally gain power. Yeah. Um, I think we're seeing something similar uh, go on. And, you know, if you, if you uh, are trying to figure out these pyramids and relationships, uh, don't neglect uh, the whole other, a uh, whole other side of the pyramid. You know, um, uh, you don't have to be a globalist or internationalist. You still need to um, see where, the information you're being fed is coming from. Exactly. If it's coming from some one-sided source, you know that it's probably not that great. And you probably you know, don't we, want this alternative um, that the the people who are feeding you information have in mind. You know, you don't have to be like a, a, a fascist or I don't even know whatever this political ideology is just because you disagree with the establishment and. Uh, globalism internationalism things like that you don't have to that doesn't mean you have to be the exact polar opposite yeah i agree i agree it's a crazy world man and things are not all black and white and things are not all good and evil a lot of people they play in melodrama and they play in just like total dichotomy it's usually much more complicated than that and it goes back to what Alan Moore said about conspiracy is that they want to believe that there's some big entity behind it when the truth is, it's just chaos and you've got many and, different voices yeah. from many different areas making you think that what you're seeing is some eternal force between, you know, but some eternal battle between good and evil. And it's not the case. It's usually one group of bullies fighting another group of bullies. That's usually what it is. And it's literally uh, a matter of life and death right now. Yes, it is. As far as the information war and what information you're choosing to believe can cost you your life as an American right now. Yes, it is. All right. So, guys, if you're interested in helping us out, you can go to Patreon. It's a little as a dollar to join up. We're going to have... A lot of stuff on there. We, we need to get back to doing extra shows because for the moment, uh, on the day that we're recording this, we are still we're putting up uh, Strange Realities Conference. And we're going to be doing a live stream event pretty soon on that. I'm thinking probably about a month before the conference itself. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at probably around like the 29th or, 20, or 30th of August, something like that, to possibly do that. We'll talk about that more later. But stay tuned for that. Uh, we're going to live stream those, the footage from last year's conference. So just to stay tuned to the Conspiracy Normal Facebook page, my Facebook page, whatever, and Twitter and Instagram. All right. I think that's it. Uh, we'll be back for some... We'll probably get a little more into the supernatural next week. And we'll be back on Conspiracy.
would like to help the show, please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. And please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.